Well, amen. Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians chapter 4. We've been going through the book of Philippians for the last several weeks. And tonight we want to conclude the letter that Paul wrote. Uh, He's finished up in chapter 3 with uh, telling them to be followers of him. And then he reminds them, uh, followers of him and also others that, uh, that walk in the same way or live their lives the same way that he does. Then he warns them about to others that are enemies of the cross and the destruction that's coming upon them. Chapter 4, he then he continues the thought or uh, the contrast, I should say, I guess, between what he's encouraging them to do, the lifestyle that he's encouraging them to live, as opposed to the way that some others are living. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Now, we've made this comment before, but I think this verse may point it out as well or better than anything else in the letter. The Philippian church is a church that Paul really loved. They have a special place in his heart. They've uh, communicated with him. They've given to him. They've, they've sent him gifts that uh, uh, provided tremendous help and support in his ministry efforts. And they've just done a lot of things uh, for him and uh, thereby have a special relationship with him and place in his heart. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, when Paul talks about chapters in verse 2, um, we've made this, uh, this statement before. Really, tonight, we're going to get into the whole reason Paul wrote the letter, and it's to say thank you for what they've done for him. There are a lot of important things, a lot of good things that we find out in the previous chapters, uh, but nothing really major as far as doctrine is concerned. There's not any new revelation uh, doctrinally to speak of, but Paul shares a lot more information about himself, a lot of personal information with them that, uh, that helps us to get a picture of who he is. He doesn't try to fix a problem that's in the church. If there is a problem, he doesn't address it. But here is a situation where there are two ladies. These are female names. There are two ladies in the church that have a disagreement. Now, it's not a doctrinal disagreement, apparently, because he doesn't say, now, here's the doctrine, the word of the Lord that fixes the problem and solves the issue. This must be a personal thing. Now, as we've said before, I think we said it before, should have if we didn't. um, At this point in time that Paul writes the letter and the time the church was founded, um, the women of Macedonia, and there are three major churches in Macedonia that, that apply to us as far as uh, New Testament experience and letters and so forth. The church of Philippi, Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia, but Thessalonica was also in Macedonia, and so was Corinth. So those three churches all have letters written to them, and in each of that, um, well, in the entirety of the region, including Thessalonica and Corinth, Women played a real, real important part, not only in the churches, but in society as a whole. The women of Macedonia were known as uh, very skillful in business, uh, very responsible. We don't know if that means they were more uh, well-educated than other women throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. That we don't have any information about. But whatever whatever the situation was, whatever the issue was, the women took a much more significant part maybe that's the best way to say it in the church the founding of the church and so forth you remember the church was founded 
when Paul found Lydia, a seller of purple, and some other women resorting to their business by the riverside. And so then he preached to them and got them saved. And Lydia constrained him, wouldn't let him stay anywhere else. He had to stay with her and, and, uh, and so forth. Well, whatever this disagreement is must be a personal issue because Paul only talks about it from a personal standpoint. So let me, let me read this again. He said, I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. Now, true yoke fellow, is a better translation, would be loyal co-laborer. Now, church history people just go nuts trying to figure out who this is. Whoever it is, Paul doesn't have to identify him to the Philippians. Whoever it is that he's referring to, the church of Philippi, and remember this is a letter to be read in front of everybody, which also has to do with the disagreement between the two ladies. Because Paul is going to make a request, entreat them in such a way that it becomes a public entreaty. It doesn't seem to be something that's, uh, that's affecting the church in a negative way. It doesn't be, seem to be something yet, at least at this point, where people are picking sides. I'm on her side. I'm on her side type stuff. So it hasn't negatively impacted the church. But Paul also um, calls on this loyal co-laborer. Now, the best guess we've got, and it's just a guess, is Luke. Because if you look at the book of Acts, Luke starts, uh, I, I think we pointed this out before. I'm not sure if we did in this study or not. But there's a point in time where Luke goes from talking about they of Paul's company to we. Well, he starts that in Acts chapter 16 regarding Philippi. We endeavored, after Paul had the vision of the man in Macedonia, saying, come over here and help us. We endeavored to go preach the gospel to them. We took it that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel and so forth. So it could be that Luke was uh, uh, of the city of Philippi. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but that's just the best guess that uh, of anything and everything I've read, that's the best guess anybody's made. It's not my guess. I don't know. But uh, whoever it is, the Philippian church knows without having to be identified. So he says, Paul says, and I entreat thee also in, regarding, in regards to the disagreement between these two ladies. I entreat thee also... Loyal co-laborer, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Now he's talking about these same two ladies in the previous verse. Euodius and Syntyche. I guess I'm saying that right. Whoever it is, however you say it, these are the women he's talking about. Um, Where it says they, they labored with me, that's a real poor translation. Because literally what it means is that word is the word contend. They contended with me for the gospel. Now you remember in Acts chapter 16, after Paul gets to, to, is supernaturally directed by the Holy Ghost to go to Macedonia, starts in Philippi, which is the chief city, most prominent city, most famous city in that region. He gets to that place and they go about their business preaching the gospel, get some people saved. And then on their way to prayer one day, there's a little girl that's telling fortunes, and she cries out. And she does this day after day after day. We don't know how many, but the Bible says for many days she did this. She cries out and says, these men are the servants of the Most High God who come to show us the way of salvation. The Bible says that Paul, on a, on a certain day, no account for it. There's no, it doesn't tell us that Paul prayed, Lord, can we do something about this? 
It just says that, that he was grieved in his spirit, which is an indication to me that the Holy Ghost moved on him to do something about this. Now, I guess God doesn't want the devil's advertising. Because what, what she's saying is true, but she's saying it by the work of the devil. So Paul cast the devil out of this little girl. Now she can't tell fortunes anymore, and the, the people that own her, her slave masters, create this big uproar, and Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in jail. They don't identify until the next day. Paul doesn't identify until the next day these Roman citizens, so that would have been illegal behavior or treatment of him. But um, where it says that they contended with, these two women contended with Paul for the gospel, what that literally means is, has to mean, it's the only place that Paul contended for the gospel in a public setting. What this means is they stood side by side with him and tried to quieten the crowd down and try to make the case. Now, for a woman to do that in that point in time in the Roman kingdom, Roman territories, the cities, would have been unheard of, absolutely unheard of. So these are people that, as far as Paul is concerned, are very prominent in the work of the gospel and in the foundation or the establishing of the church. So he says, I entreat thee uh, also, loyal co-laborer, help those women which contended with the gospel which contended with me in the gospel, with Clement also, we don't have a clue who that is, with Clement also, but he's known to the church at Philippi, and with my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Now, he can't be saying, now, these people that helped me are really saved. That can't be what he's talking about. He's got to be talking about a special reward because of the place that they took in defense of the gospel or in the furthering thereof. So he's got to be talking about a special reward in heaven. Because of the place that they've held. So Paul is endeavoring to get the church to remain united. Whatever this disagreement is, stay together on it. Come to some place of agreement. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, the reason he says this is because he's already told them in chapter 3, verse 1, his first finally in my brethren, his first close. He has two of them. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So now he says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And where he says again, I say, he's saying, I know I've already told you this, but it doesn't embarrass me at all to say it. I'll even say it again. Rejoice. In other words, he's telling these people at this church that he has a special place for in his heart. Don't get me wrong. Paul would appreciate and love all the churches that he started. But these guys are special. And so he says, live a life of rejoicing. Now, Paul has already told them. To follow me, be followers of me. So this has got to be something that he modeled in front of them. This has got to be a part of the lifestyle that he lived in front of them. No matter what the situation is, no matter what disagreements may arise, no matter what problems come up, personal or church-wide, rejoice in the Lord. Don't ever lose your place of rejoicing in the Lord. You know, it's one of the things that the devil will try to steal from you first and foremost. He'll try to make the circumstances look bad enough to where you just think, oh, the world's crashing in around me. Well, what are we supposed to do? Rejoice in the Lord. He's going to tell you why in just a moment. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In other words, he seems to be indicating, or at least it's possible, that he's referring to don't let this disagreement between these two prominent ladies in the church bring a sour attitude among the people. Then he says in verse 5, let your moderation, the word moderation literally is the word mildness or gentleness. He 
He says, let your gentleness or your mildness be known upon all men. Now, we take that out of context and, and say, let your moderation be known to all men. And that's, it's good. We should be moderate in all things. But the moderation that he's talking about here is the gentleness that's, that uh, will yield to one another. He's still talking about those two ladies in their situation. He says, if you'll operate in gentleness, then no, neither one of you will have to have her own way. But notice the gentle and kind way he says it. He doesn't ring them out. He doesn't get on them. He doesn't criticize them. He just says, let your moderation be known, upon all, known unto all men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. In other words, this is such a minor issue. And whatever the issue was, however important it was to them, it was important enough, I guess, for Epaphroditus to relate it to him, to Paul, when he brought him the gift. Assuming that's the way he heard about it. But whatever the thing is, he said, look, Jesus is coming. There's more important stuff to do than argue among yourselves. Then he says in verse 6, verses we know very well. We, again, take these out of context. But Paul is talking to a church that he loves about being followers of me, live the kind of life that I live. Rejoice in the Lord always, no matter what's going on. Now, remember, Paul's in prison when he's writing this or dictating it to be written. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. If anybody had a reason to complain about the circumstances, it was Paul. But those are the circumstances that he says, now don't ever stop rejoicing. Don't ever stop thanking God for the good things. Be careful for nothing. Another translation says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, think about being in the Philippian church. If you're part of the church at Philippi and you get this letter, first and foremost, you know where Paul is. He's still in jail. He's already said, I'm going to send Timothy to you as soon as I find out what the verdict is in my case. I think I'm going to be set free, but you never know with these nutcases that they could have for Caesars. So I think I'm going to be set free, but we don't know for sure. And then he says, whatever your situation is, this is the implied meaning. Whatever your situation is, you're not in jail. So you got a lot to rejoice about. Secondly, whatever afflictions or whatever difficulties you're encountering, don't be anxious about them. I'm not anxious about it, and I'm in jail. Now, they've got some experience with Paul in jail. He was thrown in jail in Philippi. And remember, it was at midnight. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake, and everybody's prison doors opened. Everybody's chains fell off. Everybody's stocks came off of their feet. Everybody was instantly free, and nobody moved. Everybody's waiting. Now, what in the world would keep these prisoners? If this was a natural earthquake, what in the world would keep these prisoners in their cells or holes or whatever they were? There's only one explanation, folks, and that is they realized from what they heard Paul and Silas pray and sing praises about that this was God answering their prayer. Otherwise, they'd have scattered like rats. But everybody stays put. In other words... They're waiting to find out what Paul and Silas are going to do next. Well, what did Paul do? Paul and Silas do the first time he was in jail in their town? He was careful for nothing. He rejoiced in the Lord. Whatever he prayed and whatever he sang praises about had a tremendously miraculous result. So he's telling them, follow that pattern. That's what I'm doing in this jail situation now too. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer... And supplication with thanksgiving, he mentions three kinds of prayer. Prayer, general prayer, supplication, laying hold of a right as a believer, 
Not giving up until you have hold of it. And then third, thanksgiving. Three times of prayer. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request, literally the word request is the word petition. Let your petitions be made known unto God. In other words, what he's saying is, in whatever way you have to pray, pray believing God hears you and answers you. Now, not every prayer is the prayer of faith, but you can pray every prayer in faith. Do you understand what that means? There are some things that take more than just believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. There are some things like supplication, for example, that you're going to have to pray and pray and pray until you can really take hold of it. But you take hold of it by grabbing hold from the inside. And you don't turn loose until you've got a witness of the Spirit that now it's mine. I think some of us faith people make the mistake of thinking the prayer of faith works in every situation, and it doesn't. There are some things you need to what the old-timers used to say is pray through. Keep praying about it. Now, that doesn't mean you're praying in unbelief until all of a sudden you hit the sunlight. It means you're praying in faith and stick with it because it's a right based on the Word of God, based on the promise of God. You stick with it until you know that 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 God has heard you. How do you know to supplicate? Well, the best thing I've always used as an example is if the Word says something belongs to me, then I can always pray the prayer of faith, believe in my heart and confess with my mouth. But there comes a point in prayer, and, and I, I hope this isn't over anybody's head. It certainly doesn't need to be. shouldn't be over anybody's head. But if it is over your head, just act like you understand what I'm saying and then keep praying until you get it. There's a place in prayer where you know that you know that you know. Sometimes, just based on the simple truth of the word, healing scriptures, for example, the Bible says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. You can pray, and the first time you pray, you know. But there are other things that need to be prayed about. They may be less direct or less specifically addressed by the word. For example, how are you going to pray about your future if the word of God doesn't tell you what it is? Some of those things you need to supplicate over. You need to make supplication about. Some of those things you need to pray and stay with it until you've got direction from God so that you know what to believe for or what to stand in faith about. From what it looks like to me, and I'm, I'm certainly not the expert, so you judge this, take it with a grain of salt or whatever. But from what it looks like to me, faith people have got less efficient in praying through on things than more efficient. And I think, uh, like I said, I think the, the reason for that is because we put such an emphasis on faith. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't think you can overemphasize faith. Faith is the means whereby you receive anything and everything from God. How do you overemphasize that? But we place such an emphasis on faith, maybe we do a, a poorer job of talking about some of the other kinds of prayer to the point where people think that the prayer of faith is supposed to govern everything and every type of prayer concerning my needs. Well, concerning your needs, that may be true, but concerning your future, it may not. Faith begins where the will of God is known. If you don't know what the will of God is for your future, how are you going to stand in faith or pray in faith about it? Is it making any sense? Some things you need to pray until you know. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. And he says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, connect thanksgiving with everything you pray. 
Let your request or your petitions be made known unto God. Now, when you do this, when you get them in the hands of God, sometimes it takes a while to get something over in God's hands. Not because of God's part, not because he's not willing to take it, but because we don't know how to turn loose of it. But it says when you do that, when you get to that place where you're trusting God to bring about the needs or the requests that you have, it says the peace of God will keep your heart and mind. Now, where it says keep your hearts, the peace of God which passes all understanding, he's talking about a supernatural thing, not something you can explain. There are sometimes I've wondered why I wasn't worried about things. That's a peace that passes understanding. And you've got to be careful when you talk to people about things like that because they'll get upset because you're not worried. Because to them it sounds like a situation where you certainly should be worried about it. And maybe from a natural standpoint we should. But when the peace that passes understanding, the peace that you can't explain, has settled in upon you, it keeps your heart and mind. Now the word keep is the word guard. As with a garrison of soldiers, the Amplified says. It's a good illustration. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall garrison your heart... Guard as with a garrison of soldiers, your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, here's the second finally. First was in chapter 3, verse 1. Second finally, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. True means just what it says. It means true. Honest, let me get these real quick. Hold on, where is it? Honest is the word honorable. See, some things may be true, but they're not honorable to think about. It may be true that your husband's acting like a jerk. But don't think on that. That's not honorable. See, it has to meet all these requirements. Just means right in the sense of righteous. There are a lot of things that are true. Some things may be honorable, but they're not righteous. Paul is literally saying, think on the things of God. Whatsoever things are pure, pure is a good translation. Whatsoever things are lovely. The word lovely means admirable. Admirable. It goes further and says, whatsoever things are of good report. Whatsoever things, if there be any virtue, the word virtue is the word excellence. If there be any praise, it means praiseworthy. In other words, he's saying very simply this. He's saying if you want the peace of God to keep your hearts and minds, then you're going to need to think on the things of God. Think on the things of God. Now, what has Paul just identified about himself and his lifestyle? He's saying, here's what I think on in prison. Am I sitting around worried about whether Nero is going to have me killed? No. I don't have a care. I'm not anxious about anything. Some might think I have reason to be, but I'm not. What am I doing in prison? I'm rejoicing. Why are you rejoicing, Paul? Because I've, through several means of different kinds of prayer, I've made my request known unto God. He told us a little bit about what he wanted earlier in the book. He said, if it's up to me, I'd go home and be with the Lord. But I already know it's better for you, so I believe I'll stick around. So he's made his request known unto God. It sounds to me like he's prayed through on some things, so he's got direction. 
He doesn't just stop and say, well, since I want to go, I'm out by. No, he's prayed about it enough to where he knows what to pray for and what to believe for and what to expect. Folks, Jesus really meant it where he said the Holy Ghost will show you things to come. It really meant it. He really meant it when he said the Holy Ghost is the spirit of truth. He'll guide you into all truth. That word truth is also the word reality. He'll guide you into the reality of your circumstances and your situations. I think we ought to believe God to show us things concerning ourselves, concerning our families. In my case, I, I believe and trust God to show me things for the church, even for the country. The Holy Ghost will show you things to come. He's not playing hide and seek. He's playing seek and find. It's up to you to seek. How do you do that? Well, one way is to believe God for it. So Paul says, if you want the peace of God to garrison or guard your hearts and your minds as with a garrison of soldiers, you're going to have to think on the things of God. And notice what he said the result is, or the, he summarizes, verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. That means the things he's just referred to. You saw me do this when I was in jail in Philippi. I'm doing it in jail in Rome. You saw my attitude when I was in jail in Philippi and what got me set free. That's the same thing I'm doing while I'm in prison in Rome. You saw the things that I think about and the things that I counted as important. Still do. Follow my example. And notice what he said. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Now, folks, I would submit to you when you get your mind trained on the right things. Having the God of peace with you is better than the peace of God. And that's what Paul says. When you learn to live the lifestyle that I'm referring to and the lifestyle that I've showed an example to you of, that's when the God of peace stays with you. It's not just trying to get peace in certain circumstances. It's the God of peace. Notice the Bible, uh, Paul, by the Holy Ghost, shows us that an attribute, a characteristic of God in his presence in any and every situation is peace. It's easy for us to say, well, uh, God's with me, okay. The Bible says he'll never leave me or forsake me, so God is with me. I just wish I could get peace about this. If God's with you, you got peace. And he's just identified some great ways to have God with you. Think about the right things. If there's anything that's excellent, anything worthy of praise, think on those things. Verse 10. I'm going to start with verse 10 and read down through verse 17. Because this seems to be, if not the reason, one of the main reasons that Paul wrote the letter to begin with. As I said, it's not a doctrinal correction. It's not, there's not a problem in the church he's trying to fix. This seems to be the reason that he wrote the letter to begin with. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again. Wherein you were also careful but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, that means to be impoverished, and I know how to abound, be prosperous. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Here's how he learned. Here's what he learned about situations when you're without, along with as well as the situations where you have plenty. He said, here's what I learned, how to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
In other words, he's saying it doesn't matter to me from a physical standpoint whether I've got plenty or whether I've got nothing. Because Jesus is with me just the same either way. And he supplies my needs. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, that means when he founded the church, first started the church, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity to meet my needs. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Now, let me take these verses of Scripture and talk about them in a general sense, first of all, rather than verse by verse. Paul is identifying that the Philippians are a giving church. He said, after I left you, when we first started the church, after I left you, and they kind of sent him out of town because they didn't know if they could uh, protect him. After the prison doors were open, the Roman uh, proconsul didn't want to get in trouble because he'd mistreated a Roman citizen and that type of thing. So Paul had to leave town. He said, after I left you to go into other regions of ministry, areas of ministry, Nobody gave, sent money or gifts to me, provisions to me, to help me do the work except you. And he said he, they did it on several occasions. Now, one place he says you did it in Thessalonica. And the way that the King James says it, um, let me read it. Uh, no church communicated with me is concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again into my necessity. It makes it sound like he sent several, they sent several gifts to him while he was in Thessalonica. And that's not what happened according to the scripture. Apparently, he's saying, and again in other places. You sent a gift to me when I was in Thessalonica and again when I was in other places. Now, the reason for that was certainly on the part of the Philippians is because they loved him. They loved this guy. We don't know why they took a greater, made a greater effort to show their love for Paul than the other churches did. There's nothing that we have in the historical record or in the, the book of Acts that would indicate that there would be anything that he did differently there among them that he did any other place. It's kind of hard to explain, really. But somehow or another, this part they got. They understood that Paul needed help to go to these different different cities and start ministries and start churches and, and, and so forth. So then that begs the question, why did he... Well, let me read it again and, and refer to it. Notice it says in verse uh, 10, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. It makes it sound like they first started doing some good things for him by sending him stuff, but then there, went, there was a long interval, long period of time where they didn't do anything, and now when they find out the facing death, maybe a death sentence in, in Rome, now they're doing it again. If that's the case, what's Paul thanking him for? See, this whole thing is how much he loves them and how much he appreciates what they've done. That's not what's happening, folks. Now, how do you explain at the last? Or at last? How do you explain that? Well, some commentators, and I don't know if this is right or not, but it would seem to fit the, the general theme of what he's saying is if he's responding to something that they said, at last we're able to send you another gift. Well, what would have created the interval? What would have created the time period? Paul tells us that when he writes the other letters to the churches. 
He said to the Thessalonians, or said to the Corinthians, both these two cities were in uh, Corinth, as I mentioned, or were in uh, Macedonia, as I mentioned, Thessalonica and Corinth. He wrote to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, and he said, I robbed from other churches so that I could serve you. He said to both the Corinthians and Thessalonians, he said, I didn't take anything from you. I worked with my own hands so that I wouldn't be held accountable to anything somebody said that they gave me or provided for me. So apparently, from both of the letters Paul writes to the Thessalonians and also to the Corinthians, Paul realized that when he accepted ministry gifts, there were detractors and people that, uh, that criticized him because he was trying to live off the, the gifts or the monies or the provisions of other people. And so for that reason, he wouldn't take any, any gifts. So apparently what's happened is Paul has notified these churches, Philippians, the Philippian church particularly, don't send me any more gifts. I don't want it to be said that I'm living off you or living off anybody else. I'll work with my hands so that everybody can see that I'm handling things honestly. So now when they send this gift by Epaphroditus to Paul when he's in Rome, that's maybe what they mean by saying at last we're able to send you another gift. Because Paul's the one that said that he didn't want to be held to the charge of anybody. Now, in the Thessalonican church, the people were outside of the church that were complaining about Paul living off others. In the Corinthian church, there were people inside the church that were making that claim. We know that from the comments that he made in the letters that he wrote. So apparently, the Philippians are delighted to be able to do what they wanted to do all along but weren't able to. Not because they didn't have the money, not because they wouldn't, they couldn't get enough people to gather up an offering, but because Paul wouldn't allow it to happen because he didn't want to be evil spoken of by receiving the gifts. You understand? See, if that weren't the case, he wouldn't have commended the Philippian church to the Corinthians. In Second Corinthians chapter nine, eight and nine, both he talks about how that there were other churches that set a great example of giving that the Corinthians ought to follow. Well, if the, if the Philippians or the, church, the churches of Macedonia that he speaks of, Philippi is the chief city of Macedonia, that he's talking about being such an example that even in their poverty they were generous to give. They spoiled themselves. They, give, they gave above measure. They gave what you wouldn't expect them to be able to give because of the circumstances they were in. Well, if this is a church that's made a one-time gift and then gone a long time before they did anything else, particularly in the time period that the Corinthian letter was written, why would Paul be commending them for this? Paul's commending them because they wanted to do more than he would let them do. Because he didn't want to be held accountable to anybody to have it charged against him that he was trying to live off anybody, live off other churches or live off Christians. That's why he was willing to work and that's why he did so, so that he could serve the churches that he went to start. Back to verse 17, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your own account. But I have all and abound and am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell and a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Let me make this comment before I go any further too. If you read it at face value, without the understanding that Paul was the one that said, I don't want to be held to anybody's charge. I don't want anybody. He said to the, the Thessalonians, he said, I didn't even eat anything that anybody provided without paying for it. 
I mean, he was that careful about what he did and how he did it. He didn't want anybody to be able to say anything about him and money and the handling of money or him taking money from somebody or anything like that. If that were not the case, why does it sound like Paul is saying, well, I appreciate the gift, but I really didn't need it? Because that's the way it sounds if you think there's anything other than Paul refusing to receive for the reasons that we've stated. It sounds like he's saying, well, I, I appreciate the gift, but, you know, it doesn't matter whether I have anything or not. Because I know how to live when I don't have anything. I know how to live when I have plenty. I've learned I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not much of a thank you, is it? No, what Paul is saying is that I know that you wanted to do a lot more than I would let you do. But don't worry, I never went without. God always took care of me. And then he says, and it wasn't about the gifts or the, the, the fruit that I wanted. It's that I desired fruit to abound to your account. In other words, if you give to me when I'm in the service of God, it's the same as you give into God. And that's what you get a heavenly reward for. That's what he's talking about. And, of course, the end result, but I have all and am abound. And I'm full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell. You'd need that in the Roman prisons. Air freshener is big. A sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. And here's the result of their attitude and their willingness to give. Now, the, the Macedonian church, you need to understand, the Philippians and the Macedonians were... First on board when Paul took up the offering to take to Jerusalem. And he's, command, he's commending them and instructing the Corinthian church that they ought to follow their, the example of the Philippians. Not for him, not a gift for him. He shied away from that big time for the reasons that we've already said. But when it came to giving to other Christians who were doing without, he pushed that. Paul was big on missionary offerings. He just found that it was uh, unprofitable for him to receive anything for himself or take any of it for himself because of the criticism he received. So what happens? They follow through on what they wanted to do all along. Verse 19, but my God shall supply all of your need according to, your riches, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It's interesting that this is the only church Paul gave that instruction to. Can't, does that mean that this is the only church that God would supply their needs? God can't be a respecter of persons and the Bible be true. So God will do this for anybody. But he sets forth the criteria for it and that's the heart to give. But my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The last three verses are Paul writing to himself. It was customary in this period of time that if you were dictating a letter through somebody else, the last little bit you'd write yourself to show that it was personal and that this was really you that was giving the information that's been dictated. So these last three verses are Paul writing himself. He says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. We know Timothy's one of them. We know Epaphroditus was there and is, is taking the letter back to Philippi. 
All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Paul is saying that he's gotten a number of people or had an opportunity to influence them. Whether they get them saved or not, we don't know for sure. But he's had an opportunity to influence a lot of people that were in the palace during the time that he's been in Rome, the two years he was in Roman prison. He was under house arrest, so it wasn't the, the prison that he was in later on, several years later, just before his execution. But he mentioned specifically they that are of Caesar's household. So apparently the gospel had gotten into Caesar's palace. Remember, Nero is the, is the emperor. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. I think that's an instruction that Paul is giving or a little bit of information that he's giving to say even the people around Caesar are being influenced for God. That'd be something to rejoice about, wouldn't it? I mean, if news came to somebody in the White House, I know it's far-fetched, but if somebody in the White House was influenced with the gospel, we'd be glad about that, wouldn't we? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is a real special letter to Paul because these are real special people. It shows his heart. He shows the love that he has for those that are willing to give themselves and follow the gospel and follow the teaching that he's given to them more so than any other letter that he writes. There's not a problem that he's trying to fix. There's not an issue where he has to prove his apostleship or his credentials or anything else. Paul genuinely loves these people. This is a picture of a loving church. A messenger sent from God to a loving church, a church that loves him, a church that loves God, and the love shown back from God through Paul back to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to read and study your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true, and because of it, we can see a lot of the things that are in your heart. We can see the heart of Paul toward the churches that he established. We can see the example set by a church that is operating according to your word and the love shown by the Holy Ghost in Paul toward them. Father, let us be the good in each of these churches. Let us glean from their experience and from their example. Father, I pray that we would be imitators and followers of Paul even as he encouraged the Philippians to be that we would rejoice in the Lord always, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what it looks like around us. Father, that we would be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our request be made known unto you. We thank you that the peace of God shall keep our hearts and minds as we think on the right things, think on the things of, of God, think on righteousness. But more importantly, Father, we thank you that the God of peace never leaves us or forsakes us. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to give to the gospel and to help others. And the same promise that was made to the Philippians is ours too. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.